I pray for your faith and prayers that my utterances will be received and understood by the Spirit of Truth and that my expressions will be given by the Spirit of Truth so that we might all be edified and rejoice together. As I stand here today, a well man, words of gratitude and acknowledgement of divine intervention are so inadequate in expressing the feelings of my soul. Six months ago at the April General Conference, I was excused from speaking as I was convalescing from a serious operation. My life has been spared, and I now have the pleasant opportunity of acknowledging the blessings, comfort, and ready aid of my brethren in the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve and other wonderful associates and friends to whom I owe so much and who surrounded my dear wife Ruby and my family with their time, attention, and prayers. To the inspired doctors and thoughtful nurses, I give my deepest gratitude and for the thoughtful letters and messages of faith and hope received from many places in the world, many expressing, You have been in our prayers, or we have been asking our Heavenly Father to spare your life. Your prayers and mine, thankfully, have been answered. One unusual card caused me to ponder upon the majesty of it all. It is an original painting by Arta Romney Balaf of the heavens at night with its myriad of golden stars. Her caption, taken, taken from the Psalms, reads, Praise ye the Lord. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. His understanding is infinite. As I lay in the hospital bed, I meditated upon all that had happened to me and studied the contemplative contemplative painting by President Marion G. Romney's sister and the lines from Psalms. He telleth the number of the stars, and he calleth them all by their names. I was then and continue to be awed by the goodness and majesty of the Creator, who knows not only the names of the stars, but knows your name and my name. Each of us as his sons and daughters. The Psalmist David wrote, When I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. End of quote. To be remembered is a wonderful thing. The evening of my health crisis, I knew something very serious had happened to me. Events happened so swiftly the pain striking with such intensity, 
my dear Ruby phoning the doctors in our family, and I on my knees leaning over the bathtub for support and some comfort and hoped relief from the pain. I was pleading to my Heavenly Father to spare my life a little longer, to give me a little more time to do His work if it was His will. While still praying, I began to lose consciousness. The siren of the paramedic truck was the last that I remembered before unconsciousness overtook me, which would last for the next several days. The terrible pain, the commotion of people ceased. I was now in a calm, peaceful setting. All was serene and quiet. I was conscious of two persons in the distance on a hillside, one standing on a higher level than the other. Detailed features were not discernible, but the person on the higher level was pointing to something I could not see. I heard no voices, but was conscious of being in a holy presence and atmosphere. During the hours and days that followed, there was impressed again and again upon my mind the eternal mission and exalted position of the Son of Man. I witness to you that he is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, Savior to all, Redeemer of all mankind, Bestower of infinite love, mercy, and forgiveness, the light and life of the world. I knew this truth before. I had never doubted nor wondered. But now I knew because of the impressions of the Spirit upon my heart and soul of these divine truths in a most unusual way. I was shown a panoramic view of his earthly ministry, his baptism, his teaching, his healing the sick and lame, the mock trial, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and ascension. There followed scenes of his earthly ministry, to my mind, in impressive detail, confirming scriptural eyewitness accounts. I was being taught, and the eyes of my understanding were opened by the Holy Spirit of God so that as to behold many things. The first scene was of the Savior and his apostles in the upper chamber on the eve of his betrayal. Following the Passover supper, he instructed and prepared the sacrament of the Lord's Supper for his dearest friends as a remembrance of his coming sacrifice. It was so impressively portrayed to me the overwhelming love of the Savior for each. I witnessed his thoughtful concern for the significant details, the washing of the dusty feet of each apostle, his breaking and blessing of the loaf of dark bread and blessing of the wine. 
Then his dreadful disclosure that one would betray him. He explained Judas' departure and told the others of the event soon to take place. Then followed the Savior's solemn discourse when he said to the eleven, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Our Savior prayed to his Father and acknowledged the Father as the source of his authority and power, even to the extending of eternal life to all who are worthy. He prayed, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Jesus then reverently added, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He pled not only for the disciples called out of the world who had been true, but but uh, to their testimony of him, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. When they had sung a hymn, Jesus and the eleven went out into the Mount of Olives. And there in the garden, <clears throat> in some manner beyond our comprehension, the Savior took upon himself <clears throat> the burdens of the sin the burdens of the sin of mankind from Adam to the end of the world. His agony in the garden, Luke tells us, was so intense, his sweat was as great drops of blood falling to the ground. He suffered in agony and a burden the like of which no human person would be able to bear. In that hour of anguish, our Savior overcame all the power of Satan, the glorified Lord revealed to Joseph Smith this admonition to all of mankind. Therefore I command you to repent, for I, God, suffered for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. Which suffering, he said, caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to believe, bleed at every pore. Wherefore, I command you again to repent, lest I humble you with my almighty power, and that you confess your sins, lest you suffer these punishments. During those days of unconsciousness, I was given by the gift and power of the Holy Ghost the more perfect knowledge of his mission. I was also given a more complete understanding of what it means to exercise in his name the authority to unlock the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven for the salvation of all who are faithful. My soul was taught <clears throat> over and over again the events of the betrayal, the mock trial, the scourging of the flesh of even one of the Godhead. I witnessed his struggling up the hill in his weakened condition carrying the cross, 
and his being stretched upon it as it lay on the ground, that the crude spikes could be driven with a mallet into his hands and wrists and feet to secure his body as it hung on the cross for public display. Crucifixion, the horrible and painful death which he suffered, was chosen from the beginning. And by that excruciating death he descended below all things, as was recorded, that through his resurrection he would ascend above all things. Jesus Christ died in the literal sense in which we will all die. His body lay in the tomb. The immortal spirit of Jesus, chosen as the Savior of mankind, went to those departed myriads of spirits who had deported, departed mortal life with varying degrees of righteousness to God's laws. He taught them the glorious tidings of redemption from the bondage of death and of possible salvation, which was part of our Savior's foreappointment and unique service to the human family. I cannot begin to convey to you the deep impact that these scenes have confirmed upon my soul. I sense their eternal meaning and realize that nothing in the entire plan of salvation compares in any way in importance with that most transcendent of all events, the atoning sacrifice of our Lord. It is the most important single thing that has ever occurred in the entire history of created things. It is the rock foundation upon which the gospel and all other things rest, as has been declared. Father Lehi taught his son Jacob and us today, Wherefore redemption cometh in and through the Holy Messiah, for he is full of grace and truth. Behold, as he continued, behold, he suffereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law and to all those who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit and unto none else can the ends of the law be answered. Wherefore, how great the importance to make these things known unto the inhabitants of the earth that they may know that there is no flesh that can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah, who layeth down his life according to the flesh, and taketh it up again by the power of the Spirit, that he may bring to pass the resurrection of the dead, being the first that should arise. Wherefore, he is the firstfruits unto God, inasmuch as he shall make intercession for all the children of man, and they that believe in him shall be saved. End of quote. Our most valuable worship experience in the sacrament meeting is the sacred ordinance of the sacrament, for it provides the opportunity to focus our minds and our hearts upon the Savior and his sacrifice. The Apostle Paul warned the early saints against eating this bread and drinking this cup of the Lord unworthily. Our Savior himself instructed the Nephites 
quote, Whoso eateth and drinketh my flesh and blood unworthily brings damnation to his soul. End of quote. Worthy partakers of the sacrament are in harmony with the Lord and put themselves under covenant with him to always remember his sacrifice for the sins of the world, to take upon them the name of Christ and to always remember him and to keep his commandments. The Savior covenants that we who do so shall have his spirit to be with us and if faithful to the end, we may inherit eternal life. Our Lord, Lord revealed to Joseph Smith that there is no greater gift than the gift of salvation, which plan includes the ordinance of the sacrament as a continuous reminder of the Savior's atoning sacrifice. He gave instructions that it is expedient that the Church meet together to partake of the bread and wine in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. End of quote. Immortality comes to us as a free gift by the grace of God alone without works of righteousness. But eternal life, however, is the reward for obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. I testify to all of you that our Heavenly Father does answer our righteous pleadings. The added knowledge which has come to me has made a great impact upon my life. The gift of the Holy Ghost is a priceless possession and opens the door to our ongoing knowledge of God and eternal joy. Of this I bear witness in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What a beautiful number, my brothers and sisters. The Lord's Prayer is rendered by the Tabernacle Choir. Absolutely lovely. President Benson has suggested that I serve as the next speaker. This is an awesome responsibility for me as I approach this task. Before doing so, however, I too would like to echo the sentiment expressed by others in expressing appreciation and love to our general authorities of the Church who yesterday were given a change of status or an honorable release from their strenuous duties. May I add my personal appreciation for their outstanding service over the years and extend to them and their devoted companions my love and my blessings. They have traveled far and wide in the Lord's service and merit His approbation. Well done. On one such journey, I was waiting my turn at an airline office in London, England. I reached forward from my chair and selected an advertising brochure from the small table containing reading material. The publication bore the title, Windows to the World. Each page contained a framed picture of a well-known and beautiful sight accompanied by a well-written description which made one desire to visit all of the locations shown. Pictured were the Matterhorn in Switzerland, the Alps of New Zealand, even the Taj Mahal of India. All seemed to suggest to the reader and the viewer the desirability of an immediate visit. 
Windows are wonderful. They serve as a frame on which we might focus our attention. They provide a glimpse of God's creations, the azure blue sky, the billowy white clouds, the verdant green forest, all are as frame pictures in the memory of the mind. Windows also reveal the approach of a friend, a gathering storm, a magnificent sunset, even the passing parade of life. Windows welcome light, light to our lives, and they bring joy to our souls. The absence of windows, such as in dark prison cells, shuts out the world. Deprived of light, the depression of darkness encompasses us. Windows also teach lessons never to be forgotten. Ever shall I remember a visit to the home of President Hugh B. Brown. It was graduation day at Brigham Young University. He was to conduct the exercises. I was to deliver the commencement address. I drove to President Brown's home and escorted him to my car. Before we could drive away, however, he said, Wait just a few minutes, Tom. My wife, Zina, will appear at the front window. I glanced at the window noted that the curtain had parted, and his wife, Zina Brown, was there sitting in her wheelchair, affectionately waving a white handkerchief toward the gaze of her smiling husband. President Brown fumbled a little and reached into his pocket, withdrew a handkerchief, and began to wave it gently in her direction, much to the delight of his wife. We then inched away from the curb and commenced our journey to Provo. What is the significance of the waving of the white handkerchief? I asked. He replied, Zina and I have followed that custom since we were first married. It is somewhat a symbol between us that all will be well with us throughout the day until we are again together at eventide. That day, I witnessed a window to the heart. Some windows are sealed shut by sorrow, by pain, by neglect, the forgotten birthday, the unremembered visit, the overlooked promise, all can sow seeds of sorrow and bring to the human heart that unwelcome visitor despair. A national columnist one day titled her story, What a Forgotten Birthday Can Mean, and then quoted from a letter she had received. The author wrote, I have never written to you before, but I believe the following might interest you and your readers. I found it in an old magazine. No author's name was shown, just signed, a heavy-hearted observer. I quote, Yesterday was a man's birthday. He was 91. He awakened earlier than usual, bathed, shaved, and put on his best clothes. Surely they would come today, he thought. He didn't take his daily walk to the gas station, to visit with the old-timers of the community because he wanted to be right there when they came. He sat on the front porch with a clear view of the road so he could see them coming. Surely they would come today. He decided to skip his noon nap because he wanted to be awake when they came. He had six children. Two of his daughters and their married children lived within four miles. They hadn't been to see him for such a long time. But today was his birthday, 
Surely they would come today. At supper time, he refused to cut the cake and asked that the ice cream be put in the freezer. He wanted to wait and have dessert with them when they came. About nine o'clock, he went to his room and got ready for bed. His last words before turning out the lights were these, Promise to wake me up when they come. It was his birthday, and he was 91. When I read that touching account, tears came to my eyes. I reflected on an experience in my life, one that had had a happier ending. Each time I would visit an older widow whom I had known for many years and whose bishop I had been, my heart grieved at her utter loneliness. A favorite son of hers had lived many miles away, and for years he had not visited mother. Matty spent long hours in a lonely vigil at her front window. Behind a frayed and frequently open curtain, the disappointed mother would say to herself, Dick will come, Dick will come, but Dick did not come. The years passed one after another. Then, like a ray of sunshine, church activity came into the life of Dick. He journeyed to Salt Lake to visit with me. He telephoned upon his arrival and said with excitement, Tom, you'll never guess what's happened to me. My life has changed. He asked if I had time to see him. If I were to come, he were to come directly to my office. My response was one of gladness. However, I said, Dick, visit your mother first and then come right up to see me. He gladly complied with the request. Before he could get to my office, there came a phone call from Matty, his mother. From a joyful heart came words punctuated by tears. Tom, I knew Dick would come. I told you he would. I saw him through the window. Years later, at Matty's funeral, Dick and I spoke tenderly of that experience. We had witnessed a glimpse of God's healing power through the window of a mother's faith in her son. The Holy Scriptures are replete with sacred accounts of our Master's love for the downtrodden and the poor of this world. Though many are forgotten by men, they are remembered by God and are oft-times seen through the window of personal example. Who among us can forget the timeless lesson taught by the Lord when in the audience of all the people He said unto His disciples, Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feasts which devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers. And he looked up and saw the rich man casting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. And he said, Of a truth I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all, for all these have of their abundance cast into the offerings of God. But she of her penury hath cast in all the living that she had. What a beautiful lesson, as taught through the window of example. 
At a city called Nain, the Lord opened to his disciples and to many people who followed him a window through which they might view true compassion. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto you, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. The disciples of the Lord witnessed through the windows Jesus opened the power of God and were made partakers of this same power when in righteousness they ministered to the children of the Almighty. A beautiful account recorded in the book of Acts tells of a disciple named Tabitha who lived at Joppa. She was described as being a woman full of good works and alms deeds. It came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And forasmuch as Lydda was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose and went with them, and when he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the coats and garments which Tabitha made while she was with them. Could we not say this was a window through which Peter glimpsed the industry of Tabitha's life? Peter then put them all forth, kneeled down and prayed, and turning him to the body said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Would it not be ever so sad if such a window to priesthood power, to faith, to healing, were to be restricted to Joppa alone? Are these sacred and moving accounts recorded only for our uplift and enlightenment? Can we not apply such mighty lessons to our own daily lives? When we catch the vision regarding the worth of human souls, when we realize the truth of the adage, God's sweetest blessings always flow through hands that serve Him here below, then we have quickened within our souls the desire to do good, the willingness to serve, and the yearning to lift to a higher plane the children of God. Such was the experience of William Norris, formerly the chairman of a large computer manufacturing firm and a friend of many years. Mr. Norris determined to build a plant in an area of extreme poverty. The neighbor was predominantly composed of a minority race, unmarried women with children, uneducated, uncared for, but needing help desperately. These women became the workforce in the production of high-tech computers. I had the privilege to be hosted by Mr. Norris 
and to be given a tour of his new facility. I was impressed with the employment provided, but more impressed with the company nursery, which occupied a wing of the building. Here, while their mothers worked, children received schooling, including proficiency with computers. Since most of the children did not have fathers or grandfathers who cared, grandfathers in the community were invited in to have lunch with them. The children were benefited, the grandfathers had a special blessing brought into their lives, and as a result of Mr. Norris's dream, the chain of poverty was broken. Children learned to earn. It was as though William Norris had personally blessed the life of each worker. Through the window provided by Mr. Norris, even love in action, I saw demonstrated the philosophical and practical truth. The bottom line of living is giving. As we go about our daily lives, we discover countless opportunities to follow the example of the Savior. And when our hearts are in tune with His teachings, we discover the unmistakable nearness of His divine help. It is almost as though we are on the Lord's errand, and we discover that when we are on the Lord's errand, we are entitled to the Lord's help. Through the years, the offices I have occupied have been decorated with lovely paintings of peaceful pastoral scenes. However, there is one picture that always hangs on the wall which I face when seated behind my desk. It is a constant reminder of Him whom I serve, for it is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. When confronted with a vexing problem or a difficult decision, I always gaze at that picture of the Master, and silently I ask myself the question, What would He have me do? No longer does doubt linger, nor does indecision prevail. The way to go is clear and the pathway before me beckons. Some months back, I sat in my office chair reading the Daily Mail. I opened a letter from Martha Sharp of Wellsville, Utah, and read her entreaty, seeking a blessing for her grown son, Stephen, who was a patient at the University Hospital in Salt Lake City. She described Stephen's spiritual and physical needs and the likelihood that he would suffer the amputation of his foot. Her tears were felt in each word, and her feelings of love marked every sentence. Hers was a request which the Spirit simply did not allow me to delegate. When I entered Stephen's hospital room that night, I saw a man who seemed built to ride a horse. Sensing this, I began to chat with him about a Western adventure film I had seen recently. I described the beautiful horses ridden by the principal characters, and a warm smile came over Stephen's face. Not till that moment did I note on his nightstand a book he had been reading. It was the book from which the film we had been discussing was made. Our conversation was warm and free from that point forward. In describing his condition, Stephen commented, I hope they leave enough of my foot so that I can get it into a stirrup. I assured him we would remember his name when the First Presidency and Council of the Twelve met in the Holy Temple, and that my wife and I would remember him personally in our prayers. 
I told him he had a wonderful mother who loved him and remembered him in his need, and a heavenly father who also loved him and remembered him. Stephen began to weep. It had been a long time. A special spirit filled the room. A blessing was given, a heart cleansed, a memory of home and family rekindled, and a mother comforted. As I departed the hospital, situated high on the east bench of Salt Lake City, I gazed at the panoramic view of the valley before me. The miles collapsed, the stars drew near. I could almost see, through the window of mortality, the expanse of eternity. One star shone especially bright. It seemed to light the way and mark the path to Wellsville. I remembered the poem from primary days. Starlight, star bright, the first star I see tonight. I wish I may, I wish I might have the wish I wish tonight. What was my wish? That Martha Sharp might receive the welcome message, Your son loves you. From sacred soil far away and from a timeless truth, Taught long ago came the message, With God all things are possible. Once more, a gentle but unseen hand had opened a window to the soul that precious lives might receive blessings heaven sent. He beckons to each of us and extends the warm invitation not only to gaze at the beauty seen through the windows he opens, but also to pass through them to the priceless opportunities he provides to bless the lives of others. That each may experience this privilege is my humble prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The choir will now sing Children of Our Heavenly Father, and the benediction will be offered by Elder F. Melvin Hammond of the Seventy, and the conference will then be adjourned until 2 o'clock this afternoon. The days of the pioneers are not past. There are modern pioneers whose achievements are an inspiration to all of us. In a message about the pioneers who crossed the plains over a century ago, President J. Reuben Clark spoke words that apply to pioneers in every age. In his description of them of the last wagon, President Clark paid tribute to the rank and file, those great souls in name unknown, unremembered, unhonored in the pages of history, but lovingly revered round the hearthstones of their children and their children's children. In every great cause, there are leaders and followers. In the wagon trains, the leaders were, quote, out in front where the air was clean and clear, and where they had unbroken vision of the blue vault of heaven. But, as President Clark observed, back in the last wagon, not always could they see the brethren way out in front, and the blue heaven was often shut out from their sight by heavy, dense clouds of the dust of the earth. Yet day after day, they of the last wagon pressed forward, worn and tired, footsore, sometimes almost disheartened, borne up by their faith, 
that God loved them, that the restored gospel was true, and that the Lord led and directed the brethren out in front. End of quote. The purposes of God were accomplished by the unswerving loyalty and backbreaking work of the faithful tens of thousands who pushed on, as President Clark said, with little praise, with not too much encouragement, and never with adulation. And thousands upon thousands of these measured to their humble calling and to their destiny as fully as Brother Brigham and the others measured to theirs, and God will so reward them. They were pioneers in word and thought and act and faith, even as were they of more exalted station. God keep their memories ever fresh among us to help us meet our duties even as they met theirs." End of quote. President Clark's words of tribute also apply to the membership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in our day. In every nation, in every worthy occupation and activity, members of this Church face hardships, overcome obstacles, and follow the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ as valiantly as the pioneers of any age. They pay their tithes and offerings. They serve as missionaries or as church service volunteers, or they support others who do so. Like the noble young mothers who postpone the pursuit of their personal goals in order to provide the needs of their children, they sacrifice immediate pleasures to keep commitments that are eternal. They accept callings, and in the service of others they willingly give their time and sometimes their lives. They do as the Savior taught. They deny themselves. They take up their crosses daily. They follow Him. These are those the Savior likened to the seed that fell on good ground. In an honest and good heart, having heard the word, they keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. The fruits of the gospel issue from every honest and good heart, without regard to past origins or current positions in the Church. As President Clark declared, there is no aristocracy of birth in this Church. It belongs equal to the highest and the lowliest. I will give some illustrations of modern pioneers. My examples are not necessarily the most notable, but I believe they are typical of the rank-and-file Latter-day Saints who are the heart and the hands of this great Latter-day work. Our older couple missionaries, now numbering over 2,600 throughout the world, provide an unequaled example of Christian service. Who could calculate the contribution these couples are making in furthering the mission of the Church? They preach the gospel, strengthen leaders and members in struggling branches, serve in temples and visitor centers, and in countless other ways accomplish the essential work of the kingdom, both the important and the routine. In a missionary meeting in a remote corner of the world, Sister Oaks and I listened as a devoted brother said, I never thought I could teach the gospel. I only thought I could fish. But now that I'm here, I get so wrapped up in telling people about the gospel. A few minutes later, another devoted missionary, his wife, said, I feel so sorry for those who have nothing to worry about and occupy themselves except how many steps to the swimming pool or the golf course. Time after time, the pioneers President Clark praised left their homes, loaded their wagons, and moved to new hardships at the direction of their prophet. 
In our day, many couples go on mission after mission. One dear veteran described her family's reaction. Our children say, we hope you'll come by and at least have dinner with us before you go on another mission. Every day, other thousands set aside personal preferences and give devoted service as teachers and leaders, as temple workers, in name extraction, and in so many other ways. The Apostle Paul described the followers of Christ as rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. We are tested for those qualities in different ways at different times. A few weeks ago, some members of my family visited the Winter Quarters Cemetery at Florence, Nebraska. There they saw Avard T. Fairbanks' marvelous statue of the pioneer parents looking down at the body of their baby, soon to be left in its grave at the side of the trail. These pioneers received some of their toughest tests at graveside. Some modern pioneers received their tests at bedside. One sister wrote, quote, My mother cared for her mother until Grandma was 98. My dad now has Alzheimer's disease, and my mother patiently cares for him. The amazing part of this is the attitude of my mother. She always thought she would travel after she retired. She has always kept a beautiful home, loving to entertain others. She maintains her home as best she can, but has had to put aside many things that bring her joy. The amazing part is the joy my mother radiates. Her attitude is so beautiful. She finds real joy in the simple things of life. She is the pillar of strength to the whole family as she uplifts us all with her positive attitude." End of quote. There are hidden heroines and heroes among the Latter-day Saints, those of the last wagon, whose fidelity to duty and devotion to righteousness goes unnoticed except by the one whose notice really matters. Others, including those who have been called to prominent positions, are more noticeable, but surely no more noble. I am one of these. At a public occasion, a mother introduced me to her teenage son. Do you know who this is, she asked him. Sure, the boy replied. He's one of those guys who hangs on the wall at seminary. Prominent position hanging on the wall at seminary does not put anyone on a fast track to exaltation. (laughs) The criteria for that ultimate goal is the same for every person, leader or follower, prominent or obscure. Have we received the ordinances of salvation and have we kept our covenants? A member of the Church in Great Britain said it best. He had served as stake president. As that period of prominence came to an end, he told Elder Boyd K. Packer why it did not bother him to be released. I serve because I am under covenant. I can keep my covenants quite as well as a home teacher as I can serving as stake president. Numberless officers, teachers, advisors, and clerks keep their covenants in that same way. Their service is almost invisible except to him who sees all things and promises all who do good that they shall in no wise lose their reward. The pioneers who crossed the plains took their directions from trails blazed by their leaders. 
For safety, those pioneers traveled in groups. Then, as now, a pioneer who got separated from the company and off the marked trail walked a lonely and dangerous path until he could rejoin the group. So it is today. A letter said it this way, quote, One and a half years ago, I was excommunicated. I was guilty of great hypocrisy and deception before God in matters of infidelity. This Saturday I am going to be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. As the day approaches, my gratitude deepens for the Lord's mercy extended to me, allowing me to repent and experience the mighty change in my heart. It grieves me to know of the great contribution I made to the Lord's suffering in Gethsemane, but I glory in the proposition that I, as a result of that suffering, might turn my life and make His purposes my purposes." End of quote. This writer expressed gratitude for the Lord's repentance process, which would now, quote, allow me to become the father, son, and priesthood-bearer that I always appeared to be. The feeling of finally being an honest, truly honest man is indescribable." End of quote. One of the best qualities in any of the sons and daughters of God, whatever their circumstance, is a determination to become better. Since we all have a need to improve, we should always be willing to recognize goodness and encourage improvement in everyone. One of the most godlike expressions of the human soul is the act of forgiveness. Everyone is wronged at some point by someone, and many suffer serious wrongs. Christians everywhere stand in awe of those pioneers who have climbed that steep slope to the spiritual summit attained by those who have heeded the Savior's command to forgive all men. Forgiveness is mortality's mirror image of the mercy of God. A sister wrote me about her feelings toward a relative who had abused her as a child, leaving her with a painful physical condition. In her words, I have to live with the pain and try to function around it. She wrote, quote, at times I felt angry and wondered why I had to suffer the abuse in the first place, and why must I continue to pay a price now? One day, as she listened to a talk in church, her heart was touched. The Spirit bore witness that she should forgive the man who had wronged her and that she could do so with the help of our Lord Jesus Christ. Her letter explained, quote, The price for that sin has already been paid by him in Gethsemane. I have no right to hold on to it and demand justice, so I gladly hand it back to him and rejoice in his love and mercy. Her letter described the result of her decision. My heart is so full of joy, peace, and gratitude and love. Isn't his work glorious? How I do love him. Words cannot express my feelings. Like this sister who forgave, many modern saints do their pioneering on the frontiers of their own attitudes and emotions. The proverb says, He that ruleth his spirit is better than he that taketh a city. Modern saints know that one who subdues his own spirit is just as much a pioneer as one who conquers a continent. The path of modern pioneers is not easy. Burdens carried in the heart can be just as heavy as those pulled in a handcart. And just as some early pioneers struggled for the benefit of others, 
so some modern pioneers carry burdens imposed by the transgressions or thoughtlessness of others. Another letter came from a woman who had been divorced. Although she said that the ten years that followed her divorce were a time of trial, heartache, struggle, and loneliness, she described that experience as a blessing, a refining process. She expressed gratitude for what I now have. It has brought me so close to my Heavenly Father and particularly to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a feeling that I am not sure can be expressed in words. I literally came before the Lord with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. No physical pain I have ever experienced has been as painful as the emotional pain I have felt. But each time I feel it, it draws me so close to the Lord because I think of all that He suffered and it makes me so grateful. I love Him with all my heart and soul for His sacrifice and all He represents." End of quote. Many of our members are struggling valiantly to try to do it all. They support themselves and provide for their families. They strive to carry out the responsibilities of their church callings. They spend many hours transporting their children to numberless church and school activities. They try to be generous with money and time for worthy causes in the community. They strive to improve themselves. They hope, after all of this, to have some little time left for togetherness and recreation. One sister wrote, We are having great difficulty just trying to cope. Many could say the same. Yet they do cope. They carry on without complaint, even when they have just cause for complaint. And even when they fall short, the Lord blesses them for their righteous desires. For, as King Benjamin taught, it is not requisite that a man should run faster than he has strength. How grateful we are for the service and example of these faithful members. Like all my brethren among the general authorities, I look to the rank and file members of this Church for my models of faithfulness and nobility. When I visit a conference and mingle with the Saints, I always receive more than I give. I agree with the sentiment voiced by President Gordon B. Hinckley. After describing the faithful saints he had met at a conference, he added, We have the responsibility of leading them when, in fact, we can learn so much from them. Our faith and resolve are strengthened by the spiritual achievements and service of ordinary Latter-day Saints. There are thousands of such inspirational examples, but they are rarely published except on the pages of the Church News and the Church Magazines, Ensign, New Era, and Friend. I encourage everyone to have these unique publications in their home. Some of the unsung heroes and heroines of our day are the faithful home teachers and visiting teachers who feed the Master's sheep. When the Apostle Paul likened the Church to a body, he referred to such less visible members as the hands and the feet saying that upon these we should bestow more abundant honor. An LDS girl whose parents took no part in Church activities later wrote this recollection to an elder who had been her home teacher. Quote, you were the bright hope in my often difficult life. There is no greater call than a home teacher. You loved and showed respect for my parents. You honored them and at the same time supported me. You were there. As I look back now, I realize you and the truth you offered were my life support. 
Behind the doors were years of pain, tears, and fear. You were able to come into our home and chase them away, if only for a short time. No one else could do that." End of quote. In our day, as in the days of earlier pioneers, those in the lead wagons set the direction and signal onward. But it is the faithful men and women in the wagons which follow that provide the momentum and motive power for this great work. As modern pioneers press forward, they suffer hardships and make sacrifices, but they are sustained by an assurance given by the Lord Himself. These words, first spoken to the struggling saints in Ohio, apply also to the faithful of our day. Verily I say unto you, my friends, fear not, let your hearts be comforted. Yea, rejoice evermore, and in everything give thanks, waiting patiently on the Lord. For your prayers have entered, entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath, and are recorded with this seal and testament. The Lord hath sworn and decreed that they shall be granted. Therefore he giveth this promise unto you with an immutable covenant that they shall be fulfilled. And all things wherewith you have been afflicted shall work together for your good, and to my name's glory, saith the Lord. This is his work. We are his children. He loves us one and all. Of this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Since the announcement yesterday of the change of status of some of the members of the 70s quorums, I have been trying to think of words that might appropriately pay tribute to these good men. I have concluded that words are inadequate and that in reality their real tribute will be found in the lives of people throughout the earth who have been touched by the influence of these men and whose influence will continue for generations to come. We love these men with a love that will not be diminished, even though our contact with some of them will not be as frequent as in the past. We acknowledge that they have pioneered many of the aspects of the work of the Church in many parts of the world, and now they are pioneering a new course that some of the rest of us will soon follow. They go with our love, our prayers, our deep respect and admiration, and our eternal gratitude. On the wall of the kitchen in our home hangs a clock. It's a wind-up clock. That is, it's necessary every seven or eight days to wind up the mechanism with a key. If this is not done at regular intervals, the clock eventually begins to lose time. Its chimes become sluggish and off-tone. Finally, it stops unless it is rewound again. Sometimes, when I'm rewinding this clock, I think how good it would be 
If I could restore my physical powers to their youthful vigor in a manner as simple as this, I suppose increasing age sometimes brings these thoughts to all who move into the later years of life. In some ways and to some degree I can effect a partial rejuvenation through exercise and rest and proper nourishment. I realize, however, that my physical clock is gradually winding down. The mechanism becomes increasingly sluggish. The chimes are less vibrant and sometimes a little out of pitch. One day the clock will stop altogether in spite of all my desire and effort to keep it going. So it is with the physical clock in each one of us. It is part of the Lord's plan. Our time here is but one phase of an eternal existence. As our physical clock winds down, we have the assurance of new beginnings and even greater possibilities as other phases open to us. As I think of these sobering realities, there comes to mind another figurative clock that operates within me. It is my spiritual clock. It has some similarities to the physical one. It too needs regular winding to stay in time and to keep its true tone. Unlike the physical clock, however, the spiritual one is not necessarily destined for dissolution. In fact, with proper attention and care, it grows more vigorous, more perfect in its operation, more clear and resonant in its tones. But this is not an automatic process. Just as with the clock that hangs on our kitchen wall, unless there is a regular winding up of the mechanism, a spiritual sluggishness develops, the spiritual tone becomes off-key, and unless something is done to correct the winding-down process, the clock can stop. In the world's environment today, spiritual clocks that do not receive regular attention can wind down very quickly. Just 40 years ago, in the October Conference of 1949, Elder Albert E. Bowen, a member of the Council of Twelve, spoke these words. Men are mortal and beset by human frailties. They are enticed by the pressure of immediate desire to depart from the high standard of the perfect law. When they are under the influence of an exalted occasion, they make high resolves. They firmly determine to avoid past mistakes and do better. But gone out from under the spell of that influence and absorbed in the complicated pursuits of life, they find difficulty in holding fast to their noble purposes. So it is essential that they come again and frequently under the influence which kindles anew the warmth of spirit in which good resolutions are begotten, that they may go out fortified to withstand the pressures of temptation which lure them into false ways. Happily, if they refresh themselves frequently enough under ennobling influences, the spirit of repentance will be at work with them, and they will make conquest of some temptations rise above them and advance thus far toward their final goal. That's the end of his quotation. All of us require the ennobling influences about which Elder Bowen spoke 
to wind up our spiritual clocks, just as exercise, proper nourishment, and rest are essential to our physical well-being. So are such things as regular prayer, scripture study, Sabbath worship and partaking of the sacrament, and service to others necessary for our spiritual vigor. Without these continuing influences in our lives, our spiritual clocks wind down. Nephi said, If ye would hearken unto the Spirit that teacheth a man to pray, ye would know that ye must pray. For the evil spirit teacheth not a man to pray, but teacheth him that he must not pray. But behold, I say unto you, that ye must pray always and not faint. Amulek understood the importance of prayer as a spiritually rejuvenating influence. Humble yourselves, he said to the Zoramites. Continue in prayer. Ye must pour out your souls in your closets and your secret places and in your wilderness. Amulek counseled the people to pray over their flocks, their households, and their fields. Yea, he said, And when ye do not cry unto the Lord, let your hearts be full, drawn out to him in prayer continually for your welfare and also for the welfare of those who are around you. Earnest, sincere prayer is an essential ingredient in maintaining spiritual tone. No leader of the Church in this dispensation has given greater emphasis to the study of the scriptures than has President Ezra Taft Benson. His inspired counsel to the members of the Church and to all people has led many to draw close to the scriptures, particularly the Book of Mormon. The testimonies that can be borne to the value of scripture study are numerous. There is a special power in the scriptures. Scripture study combined with daily purposeful prayer can provide much of the resolution that is necessary today to offset the influences so prevalent in the world that lead us into forbidden paths. Alma likened the word of God to a seed. We will compare the word to a seed, he said. Now if ye give place that a seed may be planted in your heart, Behold, if it be a true seed or a good seed, if ye do not cast it out by your unbelief that ye will resist the Spirit of the Lord, behold, it will begin to swell within your breast. And when you feel these swelling motions, ye will begin to say within yourselves, It must needs be that this is a good seed, or that the word is good, for it beginneth to enlarge my soul, yea, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding. Yea, it beginneth to be delicious to me. I can testify that Alma's analogy is a valid one, one who regularly turns to the word of God for spiritual strength and enlightenment will find it good, delicious to the spiritual taste. Alma promises that the seed that is planted by studying and applying the word of God will grow to the stature of a tree. But he warns those that begin to slacken in this effort, If ye neglect the tree and take no thought for its nourishment, behold, it will not get any root. Now this is not because the seed was not good, 
neither is it because the fruit thereof would not have been desirable, but it is because your ground is barren, and ye will not nourish the tree. But if ye will nourish the word, yea, nourish the tree as it beginneth to grow, it shall take root, and behold, it shall be a tree springing up unto everlasting life. One of the most effective ways to wind up our spiritual clocks is to worship on the Sabbath day and partake of the sacrament, that thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world. Thou shalt go to the house of prayer and offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. These are the Lord's instructions to us. He knows that our spiritual clocks wind down quickly without this regular experience. There is something essential about joining together with other believers to worship, to sing, to pray, to learn of God's will for us and to acknowledge His goodness to us. He has commanded that this should be so. It may be well to emphasize also that our church buildings are not the only places where we can worship. Our homes should also be places of devotion. It would be well if each day we could go home to church. There should be no other place where the Spirit of the Lord is more welcome and more easily accessible than in our own homes. A final comment about service to others and its influence in winding up our spiritual clocks. Anyone who has unselfishly given of himself in service to another can testify of the lift that comes to the giver. We need this reinforcement in our spiritual well-being. When we cast our bread upon the water in this sense, it inevitably comes back to us in even greater abundance. President Spencer W. Kimball once said, I have learned that it is by serving that we learn to serve. When we are engaged in service to our fellow men, not only do our deeds assist them, but we put our own problems in a fresher perspective. When we concern ourselves more with others, there is less time to be concerned with ourselves. In the midst of the miracle of serving, there is the promise of Jesus that by losing ourselves, we find ourselves. President Kimball added, There is great security in spirituality, and we cannot have spirituality without service. In this, as is true with all of the other virtues, the Master is the perfect example. He is our Lord, our Savior, and our Redeemer, and the perfect example in all things. I testify to you that these things are true. May those ennobling influences about which Elder Bowen spoke come regularly enough into our own lives that our spiritual clocks will continue to run strong and true is my earnest prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.